have an opportunity in our community. So there's a lot more that goes on on Sunday morning. Of course, a lot of them are gone on Memorial Day today. A lot more happens uh, than what just meets the eye on the surface level. A lot more happens beyond just what I do or anybody else that's speaking here. The kingdom of God is at hand. And he said, what will you do with the kingdom that I placed in your hand? Well, God, I can't do a lot. Then start where you can with what you have and see what goes on from there. All the parables, or most of them anyway, every one of them has a stewardship involved with the parables. It has a conflict and has a reward with it. What will you do with what I give you? In the case of the parables of the talents, the one, three, and the five, and he said, I've given each of them to see what they would do with it. The one that buried it, buried it out, and he didn't want to do anything with it, then at that moment, then he lost what he had. But you go on to find the three and the five, there was a reward for it because they took it, what they were given, and did something with that. So there's an expectation with God that he gives all of us potential, but it's up to us what we do with that potential gives to everyone a measure of faith, then it's up to us what we do with that faith. The kingdom of God is that I've put before you, what will you do with that? And it's not just an idea to believe in, what am I doing with what God gave me? What is the legacy of my Father in heaven that he has given to us an inheritance to do something with that? I don't want to stand before the Lord and say, I brought poor by you and you didn't do anything. You just looked at him and say, well, what a problem that would be. Thank God that I'm not in that situation. Or you can say, thank God that I get to minister to them for such as these are least in the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. And so we're very thankful and grateful for to be a part of that and to see what God is doing in that, in that time. I want to just remind you also that we have Kirkwood Connect Tuesday night for those who are are connecting with Diane and I and want to hang out with us. We have a great time fellowship and ministry there, one to another. And uh, so that will happen at 6 o'clock, 5.30. 5.30. I knew I'd miss it. I just said that to see if you'd catch it. <clears throat> and you did. 5.30 at Manny's. So you can find out more with that. Um, I want to share something this morning for the sake of a title. And I don't know that's the best title for it. I would call it, God has designed us to win or overcome. And it'll look at, it'll have a little bit of the journey that Diane and I are going through right now. Most of you have heard our story, how they've been diagnosed with some things that are challenging, but our heart and our affection comes before the Lord. So I'm going to be sharing our heart, but through a biblical narrative, through the eyes of God, how God sees things. God sees the end from the beginning, according to Isaiah 46.10. The Proverbs says, better is the end of a thing than the beginning. So if we understood and could have be able to see the end of something at the very beginning, would we do it something differently? I think so. So he wants to give us eyes of the Spirit, and I've shared this a number of times, to be able to see what he wants to do in the midst of something. But everything around us culturally that we get bogged down into it, we get stuck in the moment of saying you should feel this, this is what you should do. Fear is a prophetic statement of what the devil says, I want to show you another picture. When you look in the Garden of Eden, 
which is translated the place of his pleasure and the place of his presence. Everything was perfect there. When the, when the serpent, devil, came to them and said, if you eat of this tree, you will become like God. That was a lie. They were already like God. They were created in the image, in the DNA, the spiritual frequency of the Spirit of God because when God spoke, he didn't speak like verbal language. His, his power is creative. It goes out like a sound wave. I mean, we believe more, more in, the, in the electronic sounds that go over this building. We believe in our cell phones and all of those electronic things. Let me tell you, God is a spirit. It was long before any of that was invented. When God says something, it resonates, and there's a creation responds to that. So when God breathed in the man, he became a living being, speaking spirit, pneuma, spirit of God in us. Then we were like God at that very moment. The very thing the enemy tries to do is to make us feel like we've been detached from God and we have nothing like him. To make us feel like God doesn't even know where we are or what's going on. To make us feel we're more part of this world than the world to come. And yet Ecclesiastes says, I have put eternity into your heart. So the perspective that God always wants us to see is the perspective from eternity, though we have emotions and feelings right now. Right here. We all, that's part of who we are. The Bible also says, love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, your mind, your strength, with your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He uses two different things there, your soul and love the Lord thy God with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Soul and mind, most people see that as, as the same thing, sukikos, but there's a distinction. The mind is what I'm processing with my brain through memory and all that. But the soul literally is the imagination that God puts inside of us. So I said, I want you to worship the Lord, not just based upon what your memories have told you in your mind, your mental intellect, your cognitive resources, but even worship the Lord in your soul. When David was crying out the Lord, he says, bless the Lord, not oh my mind, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Yet we know that the Bible tells us that we need to have a renewed mind, have a mind that is now submitted and subjected to the way God sees in the Word of God. But the word soul there comes to the same idea that we could say from our imagination. So we could say it like this, worship the Lord thy God out of your imagination. And the imagination he's talking about is not the imagination of your cognitive thinking in your mind and conjuring up some kind of picture here. But God has placed something on the inside of us to have the ability to see what he sees. If we allow the Holy Spirit to use that imagination, knowing that the devil will take something God has given us that's holy and corrupt it and take it in the wrong direction. Pornography is the, the corruption of what God originally gave us, which is to have an imagination that was holy and bound and connected to him. The devil do anything is a counterfeit or a contradictory statement to what God is saying and doing. So the battle of the mind is, is dealing with the contradiction of what, what the serpent says and what, and what God says. And so we're continually dealing with all of those things. So I want us to see as we, whatever you're dealing with in conflict, whatever you're dealing with in life that does, has dealt maybe a blow or maybe something you don't understand or any kind of confusion 
I want to submit an idea to you, a thought to you, is to turn it into an offering before the Lord. Let your suffering, your conflict, whatever it is, become an offering to the Lord. 1 Thessalonians tells us that in everything, give thanks unto the Lord, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. He uses the statement in Christ Jesus, which means the one who has already paid the price and been resurrected, Christ, is the resurrected form of name of Jesus, the anointed one. He's now been seated. So in everything, with the idea that the power of resurrection is working through you, give thanks because of that. So in the midst of whatever it is, he said the will of God is to give thanks for it. So when you look at the parables, there is a conflict and there's a reward. So the Holy Spirit takes us through these parabolic statements to where that, I'm gonna, am I either going to be like the guy with the one talent who fears, because that's what he said, he fears it and he buried it because of what he thought might happen. And fear is a projection of something that never has happened, but I'm, I'm giving power to it. And it can be very prophetic. Or I can see the potential out of the imagination of my own heart what God wants to do and see the three and the five and invest into that. When I invest into fear and give into fear, what I'm being empowered by that, and then the, the parable of the householder, the, the one who had, gave to them, comes back to him and looks at me and says, you've invested into fear and so you've lost everything. But the one who's invested what they had and they never owned it originally, they didn't come up with it, God gave it to them. <clears throat> the parable was the, the householder, the landowner, gave it to them. And as they became a steward of something that was given to them, then they had an increase. Here's the key to be a good steward. To increase more is be a steward over what you have now so you can take on more. So this morning I want to look at how do we give God the, the pain as an offering. If we go through something and the whole time is we're complaining, and I'm telling you complaining is a demonic thing. I mean, it is a habit that comes on people that they complain even if something was good. They, they feel more empowered when they're complaining about something because it's to put somebody down to make them empowered. And it's insecurity when you complain about somebody else or something else. Amen. Very good point. Thank you, Carrie. <laughs> complaining was the very thing that was introduced in the garden was, did God really say? In other words, I'm introducing into Adam and Eve oh, something that you could do to have a complaint, an opinion against God. Maybe God's keeping something from you and you need to go out there on your own and make it happen. Become self-sufficient, which means I'm rejecting God and becoming independent from God because I am my own person. The Bible said, submit yourself under the mighty hand of God. That submission means to give up your own independence and recognize that I need God more than I need myself. Through this whole journey that Diane and I have been going through, and, and I was out of the country and just felt so helpless and being able to help her and was on the phone back and forth with doctors and diagnoses, there was a sense that the Lord spoke to me and he said, when you're tired of your strength, I'll kick in. Man, I was in a little fishing village, 800 people. Thank God I had cell service. He said, my strength is made whole or complete in your weakness. I can't fix the fixers. 
I mean, every time she had a conflict with a nurse, I wanted to call that nurse up and tell them exactly what you're doing to the person I love. I did. When you come to the point when God will fix you so you won't fix the fixer that you've put you in the fix, then you're in a good fix because now only God can do it. Most of my life, God's put me in a position when he's ready to do something that's miraculously done to show me I had nothing to do with it. And now all the while, you're walking out, living it out, and the parable to all of this is can you walk through this without complaining? There are some people could not go to work unless they had to complain against the boss that day or against somebody that's doing something. I did all the work somebody else had got the job for. Look at me. They got a raise. I didn't get a raise. Look at that. They're always comparing something. That is a demonic spirit that gets a hold that becomes a habitual spirit of witchcraft that I cannot see God doing anything good. So therefore, it's all about what I, about me, and I become the martyr. Insecurity, though it shows itself as power to put something down, someone else down, to elevate them, which means is I'm exalting myself above the knowledge of God. So God brings us through things because somewhere down the line, and I will connect this with prayer in just a little bit and give us six things as to why we don't see answers to prayer. And when people don't see answers to prayer, they give up on praying and they start blaming something or somebody else. We'll get into that in a moment. I'll connect the two, I promise you. At least I hope to. So we're walking through what God is saying, the valley of the shadow of death. The first thing he says, don't fear evil. And the Bible says so much that, that we don't have answers prayer because of the wickedness of the heart of men. The word wickedness there is really taken from an English word, or the English is taken from that old ancient word. We get the word wick from. A wick of a candle or a wick and a lamp, which means to connect the, the oil source to the light. So we're pulling something up, and if wickedness is there, we're divinely, con we're not divinely, we're connected to something that is fueling what we're seeing and feeling. If there's wickedness within me, I have a wick that's fueling fear, domination, or demonic. We could call it umbilical cord, if you will. We could call it a soul tie. We could call it something that ties me, that causes me to see the world through the lenses of being angry, upset, bothered. I got a raw deal. Everybody's wrong but me. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he wants to cut off all wickedness, all soul ties to that, that makes us think that what we're seeing and feeling is exactly God. The devil will give me thoughts and disguise them, make him think that they're my own. Because it makes sense. But when the Holy Spirit is ready to do something in a mighty way, he begins to wash out everything that is not of him. That's the word violent, biazo. The kingdom of God experiences violence and the violence, biazo, take it by force. The word biazo means when the king comes, he'll come in and he crowds out everything in this kingdom that he didn't initiate and he didn't plant. So when the Holy Spirit comes in, he's going to start crowding out wicks, things that are tied to something else, 
soul ties, umbilical cords, spiritual umbilical cords, things that ties us to that point that is in opposition to the will of God. So when we get it, he's getting ready to do something. He's ready to enlarge our capacity to receive it. So he has to eliminate everything that he didn't place there. Jeremiah calls it like this, Jeremiah 1.10, to pull down, to pluck up so he can plant. But he will not plant on something that needs to be pulled up. And when we're, the more resistant we are in pulling up, plucking up all that, the longer it takes to see that done. <clears throat> Heard a story recently, and I hope I can tell it with the right verbiage with it. An elephant and a puppy get pregnant at the same time. I didn't say it's biblical. I just said it's a story. <laughs> Maybe it's a parable. I don't know. So the puppy has a litter of, of pups. What? What is the gestation period? Like nine months? Maybe six? How much? Thank you. Sixty-five days later, this pup has its litter and has six puppies. He goes to the elephant and said, "Look at my litter of puppies. Where's your baby?" And the elephant says. Not yet. Second dog, the dog gets pregnant again. 65 days later, the dog has a second litter. And now he's got, he's got somewhere 17 babies, and he shows the elephant, look at my family, look at my babies. What's wrong with you? And the elephant just, ah. The third, third time the baby gets, the dog gets pregnant, 65 days later it has its it's gestation period, pups come along, and finally comes the elephant, and he said, there's something wrong with you. I've had three litters of puppies. Look how productive I am, and look at you. The elephant had enough, and he said, listen, it takes a year for me to have my baby. But when my baby hits the ground, the whole earth feels it. When I walk across the road, everybody stops, the car stops, and looks at my baby. When my baby comes into being, everybody moves out of the way. Where are your babies now? There are some times when God is bringing something about, and it, everything else we compare it and look at it says, nothing's happening with me, but there's something growing inside that takes a lot longer to build up and to have a capacity in order for the Lord to get glory and bring forth a suit out of that. If you remember the story with, with Hannah, that she was, she was barren, and the Bible says God specifically shut up her womb. If you don't know God has shut your womb in those days specifically, that, that it seemed as a, as a curse on you, and there were people wondering, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? If you've ever been persecuted for your faith or walking through something or someone judging you because you haven't seen a breakthrough, well, maybe your gestation period's longer, but God's getting ready to produce something and a great, mighty thing that they don't know anything about. Judge nothing before the time, the Bible said in 2 Corinthians 4, for the time will reveal itself, the timing of the Lord. So when we start judging something with the momentary circumstance, we tend to miss out what God has in a greater picture of that. I can tell you personal stories from now on that I could relate to. The time came when they would go up to the temple and Hannah still hadn't have a chil any children, but it was a huge family affair to go before the, up to the feast days, which are in right now in Pentecost. 
And Elkanah, her husband, would give her an offering, but the offering of Penina, her nemesis, and I can only imagine that she would say, you know, Hannah, how are you doing? How's your day? Have you seen my babies? Here, you can, you can touch my babies. And just simply wanting to sh stick that in your face. I feel sorry for you. I don't know why God has an issue with you. Can you imagine all the things that are said? But Elkanah loved Hannah, and he gave her extra portion, gave her offerings to give to the Lord. At that time, Eli the priest was, was not a godly man. He was a drunken stupor. There was just all of the Shiloh where the Ark of the Covenant was that time. Presence of God was supposed to be. It was just a mess. And there was no open vision. Here God shut up the womb of this woman because he had a plan for the future of raising up a prophet to the nations that was going to deal with the ungodliness and the lack of uh, righteousness that was in the land and God shut her womb up in order to bring forth something big. Even when she was praying and Eli said, you're a woman at Belial, you look like a drunk woman here. And she's pouring out her heart to the Lord. He didn't understand it. Even in times when we're going after God with all of our heart, there's persecution and misunderstanding and things are said and the people that complain about so much stuff, they will judge you by what's going on with you. Well, I wonder what they did to tick off God. Well, God found favor. Hannah found favor in God. They had a connection. Finally, Eli said, ah, whatever God said, go ahead and you know, may it be unto you. She brings forth the son. He's in the temple. He's there before the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, and he hears God for the first time, not even knowing what that voice sounded like. First time the nation had had in a long time. God will do something in a miraculous way to bring forth his salvation, to bring forth his glory. And he first puts us in a position, are you going to, I love what, what was being sang, was a song we sang years ago, some trust in horses, some in chariots, we will remember the name of the Lord. Tim doesn't know this, but Friday I was singing this song to the Lord. God, I, I'm not trusting in the system. I'm trusting in the name of the Lord. Thank you for that confirmation. And we're at that point to where we're carrying something holy inside of us. And nobody understands it. No one sees it. So how we steward that, how we steward that grief, how we steward that pain. But I will suggest to you, and I don't have time to get into too much this morning, but God sees an offering different than we see an offering. We see an offering as something that's valuable to us, something that could be used, something that, that has a monetary, many times that. God sees an offering as something that comes from the innermost being of our heart. Money doesn't mean, that means not anything to God. For man shall look on the outward, God looks on the heart. Where your treasure is, there's your heart. So when you're going through something that's heavy and burdensome, it's your heart offering to present it before him. Jesus was crucified on an altar that God provided. God so loved us, he provided his own sacrifice. And yet, there was people cursed him, there was people that said all kinds of manner of thing about him, 
But the time was coming that resurrection, redemption was going to happen and the power of God himself manifested in such a way that opened the door for, for many more to come. So you might be going through a temporary thing and season, but allow the process of the Holy Spirit to work through you, present it on the offering, the pain to the offering of the Lord and say, God, here it is. I don't have to understand it. I don't even have to know the value of it. All I know is that you're giving something to me to bear so I can give it back to you. It is God gives seed to the sower. So if this offering that I'm carrying, it wouldn't be the offering I would choose. I carry it as a seed because it comes from you and I give it back to you. Now, let me just clarify. Sickness and disease does not come from the Lord. It comes from the devil. But God knows how to get the biggest bang for the buck. I'll take what the enemy meant for evil and I'll bring forth my glory out of that. Midst of that. All right. Turn with me to Matthew, the 13th chapter. I'll see if I can articulate what's been stirring in my spirit. <clears throat> this is the parable of the sword of the seed. I don't want to read the whole thing, but I want to pick it up in, in verse 18. Pick it in verse 18 and uh, read about three verses out of this. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. Pay attention. The word parable is the word parabola, which means a truth to come alongside a narrative. In other words, there's a deeper truth than just simply the story of itself. He said, hear the truth of it. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand, the word of the kingdom is how God operates in the spiritual world. The kingdom of God is not a church, a building, an organization. The kingdom of God is how he operates. He's the king. Basali is the word, meaning the dominion and operation and government of the king. You can be in church all your life and never be in the kingdom. John the Baptist came, preached about the kingdom of God, and yet did not enter in. Jesus says, John's great, but greater is he that enters into the kingdom of God. Because John prophesied, preached about the kingdom of God, but never entered in because Jesus was the door to that kingdom. So the kingdom of God is how does he operate the government of heaven? How does God see things? What is, what is the protocols of heaven? What is the demonstration of how he does it? That's the kingdom of God in a nutshell. Look at verse, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, which means, doesn't mean cognitive, means apply. He did not make application. I can hear it. Well, that's a great message or dismiss it. But if I don't apply it, then the, whatever truth was there, the truth doesn't make me free. The only truth that makes me free is the truth I apply, not the truth I hear. It's not the hearers of the word, but the doers of the word. So two things is, knowing how the government of God, the rules and regulations of, the, of that government of God operates, because God didn't operate the way we think, and we don't understand or apply it, then the wicked one, there's that word wick, that umbilical connected, the wicked one comes and he snatches away what was sown in the heart, that is he who has received was seed by the wayside. When John was on the Isle of Patmos, when you find in Revelation, 65 years after Jesus was crucified, he has revelation of what's called the seven churches of Asia. And he uses this one phrase. He said, I was on the Lord's day, and there was a door in heaven opened, and I was caught up in the Spirit. 
I would love to be able to take us through a time to where we can learn how to be caught up in the Spirit. I'm not talking about being translated. I'm not talking about, you know, just uh, being out of your body. I'm talking about letting your spirit so come alive that you now become in tune, connected, divinely connected with heaven so that answers and solutions and understanding comes. Is that freaky weird? I don't think so. To the average person probably is. But he said there's a place in heaven where we can divinely get connected with him and we can be caught up in the spirit, my body being here, but yet the third part of my being spirit can be entwined with him that I can hear things that are out of this world that brings comfort and peace and understanding. So when he says the kingdom of God operates with this governing of God, now look at the rest of this. And he, started, he gives an understanding of the parable of the, of the sower that he read that was in the previous verses. The wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. It found no place to really grow. Verse 20. He, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself or longevity. It's great for a moment. Great everything, rah, rah. Season comes, I enjoyed it, and then all of a sudden I get tired of it. Sounds like a lot of Christians. I got bored with doing. I got bored with serving. I got bored with something. That means it had no root inside of me. I wasn't doing it under the Lord. I was doing it for the sake of the people. I get bored if I'm serving people after a while. Sorry to tell you that. I love you. But to do it with any kind of longevity, you have to do it as under the Lord that has an eternal value, an eternal reward. If we're waiting on people reward us for that, that gets really old really quick, and it loses its sense of value. Amen. So because the seed didn't have any root, any depth to it, it had no longevity. It was just, whoop, here, I'm going to sow it on the next thing, whoop, on the next thing, and just become grasshopper Christians, just chapelinos in Espanol. We're just jumping around, all kinds of things. But he said because it had no root, it never could produce the very thing that the seed was meant to do. There's sometimes when God takes us through something, that seed or encounter of what he's taking us through meant to produce something in us, but we bail out before it's time and we resist God and we run away from it and find ourselves not having it produce what he wants to. The Bible says that our momentary light affliction will produce a greater weight of glory. Whatever the length of time was the affliction, his intention is to produce a greater weight of glory or himself coming upon us in a greater sense. You find people that have had great encounters with the Lord, you'll find also that they've gone through some great pressurizations of the Lord and they've continued to stay connected to the vine and stayed ingrooted with him, lies root to go down deep, so it would produce the manifest presence of God. Otherwise, it's easy to talk about the presence of God, but not letting it manifest in us is a whole other thing. Okay. Look at verse 21. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while, for when tribulation or testing is the word there, or persecution, means he's ever had that. Here's what I want us to see out of this verse. When Tribulation or persecution arises, 
because of the word, because of the word, because of the word, because of the word, immediately stumbles. There's something about testing and tribulations attracted to the word. When God has put something inside of you that is a depth of his word and you live by his word, it, it, it attracts the enemy. Well, what kind of deal is that? Who wants to serve God with that? I mean, if I receive the Lord, then I become attacked all the time? No. The idea is I've given you this, but I train you for warfare through the process so that there's a reward involved and a greater weightiness of who God is because I would not know who, how powerful God is unless I, it was challenged in my own life. That's why there's two trees in the garden. I made the choice. Now, in Exodus 13th chapter, it's just interesting to note. You look at verse 17. That when the Hebrews came out of Egypt, the Bible says that God did not take them by the way of the Philistines. Had the people gone that way, what would happen? That they would be afraid, see the Philistines, although they was, there was a closer, was nearby, and they would go have a way to return back to Egypt. God chose to take them a long way around because they were not ready for what they were going to encounter. The time would come when they would have to face the Philistines. And we see that later on. When Moses' era, they would not enter in. Finally, it was Joshua who took them in. Joshua and Caleb. God allowed them to see the Philistines and said, you still want to do this. Twelve spies go in, two come out. They all had... A similar report. They had a factual report, but they didn't have a true report. The facts are, yes, the giants are there. The Philistines are there. The sons of Anak were there. There was houses we haven't had to build. There's vineyards we don't have to plant. There's wells we don't have to dig. It's exactly what God said, land of milk and honey. Two people saw what God could do. The other ten saw the circumstances and backed up. We will go back to the wilderness. And they were even complaining, I'd rather go back to Egypt which was a system that was, that was controlled and system of ungodliness and idols and witchcraft there. I want to go back and live underneath that than have to face something I don't know. Faith without works is dead. And when faith is challenged, we have that option. If I move forward in faith, not knowing what the next foot's going to do and what's going to happen, but I'm trusting God in the process of that, then our faith is increased and it grows and God trusts us for greater things to come. But if there's a tendency to go back to the familiarity, back to the, the flesh pots of Egypt, then we miss out on what the promises of God have said. Here's my point with this. I'm, Diane and I, we're going through all of this, and I use this as a point of reference. We go back and we remind ourselves of the promises of the Lord. The Bible says the promises of the Lord are yes and amen to them that fear, to them that believe. Believe that he is, Hebrews, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Seeking him would not be, be running from something, but seeking him means I'm going towards him. Seek, not seeking him would be to return to an old familiar thing that is the carnal, our default mechanism of complaining, being angry, hostile, and we can live all of our lives out that way in a very solitude way away from God. 
Joshua and Caleb, who had to endure a whole generation, God had promised them something. Joshua's 85 years old now, and he said, I'm just as now strong as I was on the first day. Give me my mountain. I already saw the Philistines. I saw what they could do. I know all about them. I know everything, all the diagnosis. I know everything about giants there is to know, and I still believe God. If the, if the conditions and circumstances can talk you out of who God is, then probably is you didn't have the relationship you thought you had. <laughs> I'm just telling you how I feel. Do you know me? Oh, I think I do. Well, let's look and see. Jesus was tested in all points like as we, and yet without sin. He didn't violate who God was. He wanted the encounter. When he was tested up in the mountains with Matthew, the fourth chapter, the devil challenges who he is, is who he is as a son, challenges authority, challenges his identity, and I challenge even the fact of who he'll be. Prove who you are. Cast yourself off this, the, temp, the temple mount. If you're really who you are, then the angels would hold you up. In other words, tempting God. God, if you're really doing, then I, I, I challenge you to do this for me. I can't bargain with God. I can't say, God, if you're really in this and you're really going to help me, I need you to do this, this, and this. If my relationship is solid with him, he doesn't need to prove one thing to me. He has already done that. He proved his love by sending his son on the cross. Resurrection followed out that. And he said, am I not enough? If I don't come through and do exactly what you want me to do, will you still love me? Or is it a deal breaker? If it is, then I'm a fickle Christian who doesn't have much root and have much depth in that, but it only happens for a little while, but the perseverance and to the level the persecution comes is the level that my roots will go deeper or I'm bailing out. They did an experiment that years ago called Biosphere 2. Biosphere 2 was an experiment to build this giant greenhouse so that we could grow food faster and more efficiently, maybe even do it on other planets. So they had this giant greenhouse that the water temperature was regulated, the wind, they had no wind, but the, the temperature was right and had the right sunlight. Everything was perfect. They grew food very fast, but they had one problem is a tree would grow up so fast it would whoop, fall over, whoop, fall over fall over. Somebody that had it was a farmer came and said, the reason your trees are falling over, falling over is because it doesn't have any roots. And the reason it doesn't have any roots, there's no resistance. There's no wind in your garden. There's nothing to blow against them to put down roots. That's why you go to hurricane places, Florida, and you can find some deep rooted trees. To the level that the winds blow against, it will cause the roots to go deep. So there's times when the Holy Spirit will allow, and I use the word allow there, things to resist us to allow there to be a deep enrooting, being rooted and grounded in love so that you may be able to withstand the last days. So God comes in along and he tests right before he's ready to build on. I want to test the foundation because I'm getting ready to put something heavy there, something weighty of his presence. And he didn't bring the, the Hebrews around until it was time for them to have a, a warfare. They needed to know God first, saw his wonders, saw his miracles, and he said, now, this is where I'm going to take you. 
And what they saw caused them to want to go the other way until there was a generation that came up that knew God and they could enter into that. Now, Hebrews, the fourth chapter, tells us they did not enter into rest. And the word rest there didn't mean take a nap. It means completion of the promise. They did not enter into the fullness of what God entered, entered, wanted them to because their faith was not mixed with the word. They heard the word but didn't do anything with it. They heard the word that this is the land of promise, had heard it from Abraham all the way up. It was promises for, for 430 years, and yet when it came time to enter in, we're so familiar with Egypt that we don't want to risk having to confront something we've never seen before. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He prepares us for what God has in store for us by bringing us into a point and saying, you're going to trust me or you're going to go to something that's familiar and run away from it. Take the easy way out instead of going right through. The Bible says that when the, Isaiah 43, when you go through the fire, you won't be burned. When you go through the flood, you won't drown. It doesn't say you won't go through. It just says when you go through, the circumstances will not dictate to you what the outcome will be. But we walk through. So there is a maturity that's coming to the body of Christ, spirit-filled people, to deepen our roots and who we are in the Lord, that it's not just sermons and, and uh, potluck dinners, and I love all those, but it's the fact is, are we going to walk with God in such a way that I'm trusting Him because eternity has been set in our heart, and we're crying out, I'm heading there, I'm heading there. I've gone too far to turn back now. If you can let someone or something offend you that turns you back from God, then that, that is a testing that's failed. Amen. It's a bait. Or if something happens that circumstances and you start trying to figure it out with your mind that causes you to back up and there may be legitimate ways of thinking through it, but it all comes down to it. But it's not God. I am moving forward with it. Psalms 105, I want to end up here. Last verse. Psalms 105 is, is giving a recording of the faithfulness of God over a number of people. Starting in verse 15, he's saying, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. He's talking about his own people. He's not talking about somebody with a fivefold ministry. Using that scripture out of context is dangerous. Do not touch my anointed. I mean, we've used that scripture, said, you get me, God will get you. That's not what he's saying here at all. Don't touch my anointing, was the original. Don't touch what I'm doing. Don't lay your hand under my presence, not just a gifting. But do my prophets no harm. Moreover, he called for a famine on the land. He destroyed all the provision of bread. God was getting their attention. All right, verse 17 is where I want to look. He sent a man before them whose name was Joseph. Who was sold as a slave? They hurt his feet with to hurt his feet with fetters. He laid his his feet in irons until the time that his word came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. And you can go down and find all the all the issues there. Joseph has a dream. You know the story, and he shares a dream with his brothers. His brothers turn on him. And because of that, they put him in a pit, wanted to kill him, 
Finally, they one said, let's sell him, you know, make a profit out of that. They sell him into slavery. I want you to look at some of the similarities between Joseph and Jesus. Remember Jesus' brothers, not his close brothers, but his brethren, the Jews, that they rejected him as well. Jesus was rejected by his brothers, betrayed. Judas betrayed him. His brothers, Joseph's brothers betrayed him. Loved by his father, Jacob loved Joseph. Brothers were jealous. And eventually he fulfilled the word. And his brothers at the end, according to Philippians 2, has to bow down to him. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. At the end of the time, when Joseph goes through all of the persecution, and it looks like he is the loser, and where's your God now? What happened to your dream now? Oh, dreamer, won't you dream on? Making fun of him, mocking him. And he's sold into slavery. Now he's in Potiphar's house. He's closer. He's closer to where God's destined for him to be, though he's far away from his father's house. He's far away from where he started, but he's closer to the destiny of God. You have a momentary time. You think you're winning, doing really good. I got favor. According to Luke 2, Jesus grew in favor with God and with man. His favor, our favor with God is always there. Praise God, we get favor with one another. Until the time that Joseph perhaps was getting too comfortable in Potiphar's house, and God will bring something up to see what our response will be. Potiphar's wife hits on him. She is in authority over him, but he's operating out of this sent word from God, and he steps away from that. And because of that, she lies on him, and he is accused, false accusation, and put in prison. Now you're dealing with injustice. I mean, it's bad enough, God, that my brothers betray me. And then it adds insult to injury. I lose my job that I like doing. And then if it's not bad enough, I'm in prison for something I didn't even do. How many of us would sit in prison all the while thinking, how did I get into this mess? I had a word. Going back to Matthew 13. Because of the word... Persecution arises. Because of the calling of God, afflictions may come. Afflictions are many, but God delivers the righteous out of all of them. Doesn't mean you're messed up. It just means you're moving towards a destiny because the end result is going to be God's going to fulfill His word. Going through the process of that. Conflicts bring you closer. I'm not talking about conflicts that we create. The conflicts will bring us closer to the Lord and closer to our destiny if we handle that correctly. Amen. Right. So Joseph was in that condition. He couldn't hurry it up no matter what he did until the time that God says the word is completed. The word started a process in him that took him down a trail that he had no idea. You can have a prophetic word and a lot of times people, I don't want that word. But when you embrace that word, there's grace and anointing on that that can really take you into some great and wonderful things. But the end result is, how do we steward what God's called us to do? Now, let me finish with this. Six things, I'll give them to you quickly. That when you're dealing with conflict and you don't see answers to prayer, some things to think about while we're waiting on those answers. Number one, 
Just remember, God is not the problem. He wants to be your partner. The first thing we want to do is blame God. God, you did this. Why did you get me into this? What have I done? Number two, Proverbs 25, 2 really speaks to this. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter is the glory of kings to seek it out. So when we get a, it seems like God is saying no, it's really not an oh, no answer, but as much as him inviting us to go deeper and to seek him and go to the depths and find out what, what's happening here. It's the glory of kings to seek it out. My mother used to hide the fudge on Christmas, even when I was adult and living here. It was, the fudge was so good, she knew that when we come home for Christmas that we'd get into the fudge and eat it before it was time. So it became kind of a tradition between me and my siblings that to see who could find the fudge. I knew all of her hiding places. So one time I found the fudge in the linen closet underneath some, there were shoes and blankets and some stuff there. I found the fudge and I rehid it from her. <laughs> On Christmas Day, she went there and says, I know it's there. I know it's there. Am I losing my mind? I know it's there. I know. I, I, well, I agree. You make it every year. What happened? Until I finally could not stand to see my mother crazy. And I finally got it. She looked at me. But what she did, because it was hidden, it raised the desire for the fudge that much more. That fudge was more delicious because we couldn't have it than if it was made easily for us. There's times God will conceal a matter to raise the appetite and the level to want to seek him out till we get it, till we want it more desperately. So when he conceals it, it's not because he's saying no, and it may appear that you're not hearing God in the process, but the point is that he's wanting you to hunger for it that much more and pursue him that much more instead of saying, oh, well, I guess it wasn't God and give up on it. Number three, I asked myself, what is he wanting me to learn from the wilderness I'm now in? God, what do you want me to learn? In the wilderness, they, they learned God was the covering, cloud of night, day, pillar of fire by night. He was a provider, manna. All of these things showed up. What is God wanting to show you about him in the wilderness you go through? If you don't become angry at God, blame God, blame anyone else. What is it that God wants to make this as an offering? I think we can get through it quicker if we'd look to him as the author and the finisher of that faith. Number four, timing is crucial. There's probably adjustment I'm needing to have the, so I can have the capacity for the miracle. Am I ready for that? Hannah waited for the timing of God as I've shared that until she raised a prophet, Samuel. The timing, whatever you're going through, don't give up until you've fulfilled the gestation period and you're ready to bring it to birth. Don't abort the seed before it's his timing or it won't produce what he has in store. Number five, will we be, will I be a good steward of what God wants to do? Will God be a good steward of the miracle that he wants to bring into my life? Am I going to glorify the Lord, exalt his name in the process? I can only know that by how am I being a good steward when things aren't as easy? How do I steward when things aren't as pleasant? How do I steward when there's an emotional heaviness that's there. In all of these things, I want to give thanks, for this is his will. God loves it. He loves a cheerful giver. What does that mean? Money? No. He loves when we're cheerful 
because we're giving out of even the, the process we're going through, giving out of the pain, giving out of the hurt, giving out of that. So it's an offering, and he considers that to be a cheerful giver. Here's number six, and lastly, like the unjust judge where the parable of the woman comes before the judge, and he says to himself, unless I give her what she's looking for, she's going to keep pushing me. So be persistent. She, the late, the woman before the judge received due because of her due diligence and not giving up. Be persistent. James 5 says that the prayer of a righteous man, one translates the red-hot fervent prayer, avails much. I can tell you, if I'm not impressed with my praying, I'm sure God's not. If even my own prayer is not moving me, how can it move God? If I'm just throwing up a prayer like, oh, God, you know, do what you can do. Let it be. Whatever your will be done. If it's not an intense burning inside of me, how am I supposed to give that as an offering? It's a sloppy thing. God, you do whatever you want to do. It's a cop-out. But when there's the divine connection and you're in the Spirit, you pray with an intensity. Birthed by the Holy Spirit, he receives that comes up before him, and you've now partnered with him in something that will be miraculous. But wait for the time and the season, because when the timing and the promise come together, at that intersection, there's a suddenly. Stand with me. Father, I pray over every one of us today, no matter where we're at, what we're going through, the processes we're dealing with and seeing through, I pray that we would be faithful seeing the fulfillment of everything you want to do from the beginning to the end. We repent right now, God, of complaining. Complaining about the manna. Complaining about the process. Complaining about the conditions. Complaining about, you know, what you're doing to me, oh God. And even the comparison of comparing somebody else and their conditions and their situations much easier than ours. Thank you, Lord, that we've been found worthy to suffer with you, that means your, your word says that we'll also reign with you. That we found worthy to walk out pain with you and to trust you at all seasons, at all points of life, and yet not sinning, which is coming against you. We Help us as Lord as, as Job. You said, you even brought up to the devil. Have you considered my servant Job? What? Don't say that, God. I don't even know him there. But God sees the end result is because he knows I want to give you more than what you started with, double for the trouble. And so there's reward processing and going through this. And then there's rejoice in the process because there's a preceding word coming to you. Father, we present our bodies a living sacrifice, an offering to you. We present our thoughts as an offering to you. We present every part of our being as presenting to you, O God, that we're not compartmentalized saying, that belongs to me and you can have that, but I'm, that belongs to me and I'm going to take that back. God, we allow you to have every part and portion because you created us to win. You've destined us for resurrection. You've destined us to be finishers. And thankfully, Jesus, you finished on the cross. And we praise you and thank you for it in Jesus' name.